This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Doug Collum and Irene Yen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Bay Area Ventures on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. As usual, we're here at the Wharton San Francisco campus, grateful to be inside. We have an atmospheric river pouring rain outside, so it's a nice day to be uh, in a broadcast right. booth. Well, at least we're not in the mountains where it's storming, where you just came from. And I'm here with my co-host, mm-hmm. Irina Yen. So in just a minute, we'll be joined uh, with by Owen Thomas, the business editor of the San Francisco Chronicle for our Bay Area Beat. And then for the rest of the hour, we'll be joined by a very influential woman in business, Anne Devereaux Mills. Anne is a seasoned connector, speaker, and advocate, and a serial CEO, uh, advertising executive, and now the founder of Parlay House, which is a national salon-style gathering of more than 1,000 women who meet to support and pull each other forward. And we look forward to learning more about Parlay House. And then joining us in our second hour will be Anthemos Georgiados, who is the CEO of Zumper, which is a residential uh, rental startup. And their mission is to make renting an apartment as easy as booking a hotel. So for everybody who's just uh, dialing in on uh, our program for the first time, Bay Area Ventures is all about startups and venture capital. Um, focus principally on companies and ventures here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, we have been expanding our themes over the last year or so. Mm-hmm. so Irina's nodding her head. And we're trying to, to uh, bring in more companies that are outside the classical venture-backed tech space. And I, I think we, so far we've, been, we've had a pretty interesting range. Very of interesting, speakers. including today. <clears throat> so our show broadcasts live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern for your commuting pleasure. And we, we, the program re-airs again throughout the week. As a reminder, this is a talk show, so if you've got a question for us, you can reach us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And now, for our Bay Area Beat, I am pleased to welcome Owen Thomas, the business editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. Hey, Owen, welcome to the show. What's going on this week? Well, Doug, there's a lot going on uh, from our newsroom here in uh, rainy San Francisco, 901 Mission. Uh, we are looking at Airbnb and its presence in its hometown, uh, the city. Um, we're also looking at the state of content moderators, the people who review uh, flagged content on Facebook, uh, reports of violence or uh, other distasteful content on the social network. And last, there's a uh, a wave of folding phones coming at you from Mobile World Congress, uh, which is taking place in Barcelona. And I think we need to figure out if we need these new gadgets. So I'll start. Uh, I'll start with our big story. This uh, is a special report from the San Francisco Chronicle. Our Airbnb reporter Carolyn Said has, for several years now, been doing a deep dive on Airbnb and exactly how many listings. It has. There's been a lot of concern that Airbnb listings have been uh, pulling housing out of the regular market and essentially turning these uh, turning these homes into ersatz hotel rooms. Well, Airbnb and San Francisco actually reached a kind of uh, a kind of peace. They um, settled on some regulation that Airbnb decided they could live with, and it has had a dramatic impact. It's actually really limited Airbnb's growth um, in its hometown. In the past, we've seen just a a runway growth in listings and activity. And this year, compared to last year, the number of listings was stable, which is a really surprising result, uh, just given Airbnb's really fast growth throughout, uh, throughout its short history. The thing is, the company says that their revenue is still growing because though their number of listings have stayed the same, they are more efficient. These are better listings. So they're actually saying that this regulation has brought them some benefits in terms of there being fewer kind of shaky, uncertain listings or people just kind of testing the market. Now they've got more committed hosts who are seeing uh, their, their rentals used more. 
And they also say that they're growing around the Bay Area and the surrounding counties, that their, um, that their business there is up some 44%. All of this matters because Airbnb has operated in San Francisco longer than any other city. It is their hometown, as I mentioned, and it is kind of a test market for how they engage with local governments. They're facing regulation from New York to Paris to Berlin, and um, investors will increasingly be concerned about that. Right now, Airbnb is a private company, but they have said they might go public this year or next year. So what has only been a concern for venture capitalists could soon become a concern for stock traders, for ordinary investors who hold Airbnb in their portfolios after that uh, initial public offering. I think there's a um, there's a lot of learnings here. I do encourage folks, if they're interested, to check out the full report at sfchronicle.com. The next piece of news I want to talk about is Facebook and their problems moderating content. Now, Facebook has said, look at what we're doing about all of the problems with fake news and uh, abusive speech, uh, problematic speech on our on our social network. They've talked about how they're hiring tens of thousands of workers to deal with this content. Well, what they're leaving out is that most of the most of these workers are in fact contractors. So they don't work for Facebook. They work for other companies like technology outsourcing firm Cognizant, and they're often making barely above minimum wage, and they're doing what could only be described as soul-crushing work. They are looking at, um, they're looking at dead bodies. They are looking at pornographic images that should not be on the social network, uh, but you know, do get posted there because there are billions of people on Facebook's services, which include Instagram and WhatsApp, and a lot of stuff gets posted that's against the rules. The this latest deep dive into the state of content moderation on Facebook comes to us from The Verge, which is a technology publication. Uh, it's written by Casey Newton. It's a really good report. I encourage you to read it. But the high-level takeaways are that the content moderators really struggle. Uh, they struggle psychologically to deal with the content that they're reviewing. The help that's given is maybe not everything that – they really need. There's a counselor on site at one of these places in Arizona where they work, uh, but not all day. And um, some of them are turning to drug use. Some of them are having sex with coworkers in the office to essentially blow off steam. It's not a great environment. And when you think about these are the people on the front line of keeping Facebook safe, it's not a good look. Again, you can find that on theverge.com. Uh, it's by Casey Newton. And uh, it really is a good read. The last thing I'll say is I really question what the tech industry is up to when it comes to smartphones. The latest innovation that no one wanted is the folding phone. This is a phone. It looks like an ordinary phone. And then you fold it out into a square. The problem is if people want a tablet, they can easily get a tablet. If they want a larger phone, they can get a phone in multiple sizes this folding phone just seems like it's a it's a recipe for disaster. It's confusing for consumers. Developers have to rejigger their apps to uh, to make use of the larger screen size. They're not necessarily going to want to do that when every phone uh, is, you know looks a little different. I don't think uh, I don't think this will go down in history as one of the uh, great new concepts in smartphones. I would encourage smartphone makers to really think about work on battery life, work on stability, and your customers will be very happy with you. And uh, that's about it. Um, again, I'm Owen Thomas. I'm the business editor at the San Francisco Chronicle. You can follow me on Twitter as at Owen Thomas, and you can follow our tech team on Twitter as at Tech Chronicle. Back to you, Doug and Arena. Boy, this is great. It's always interesting to hear... Um you know, developments going on in the in Silicon Valley and the San Francisco Bay Area. I have to say in the just in the press in general, almost all the press I read about Facebook these days is negative. They're they're facing some serious challenges just given the volume of information that comes across their site and the sudden focus on uh, how appropriate a lot of that information is. So it'll it'll be a challenge for them going forward. But Owen, thanks. It's great to have you on board. 
Owen. Um, so again, you can follow Owen on Twitter at, at Owen Thomas, and you can check out his work and his team's work at sfchronicle.com. So for those of you just tuning in, you are listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Irina Yen, along with Doug Collum, and we are thrilled to welcome our next guest, Anne Deverell Mills. Um, following a strenuous, accomplished career as a serial CEO at male-dominated healthcare advertising companies, Anne realized something was missing in her life, which led her to found Parlay House, which is a national organization with thousands of members and monthly gatherings in San Francisco, New York City, and they are expanding. And welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So our listeners are, you know, really interested in hearing about your story. So I guess just to start off, um, could you share with us about your background, your journey as an executive, and what eventually led you to found Parlay House? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so mine starts off as a pretty traditional story. Uh, from from what your your guests usually talk about, you know, sort of wandered my way into the career that was right for me by iterating a few times, found myself loving the creativity of advertising and sort of the depth and meaning of healthcare, and that became a great career. Um, and I did it for many, many years, was a single mom, and did that crazy commute that many of our listeners know so well of getting up at 4.45 in the morning in Summit, New Jersey, and driving into New York City so that in case my kids needed me, I had a car. And I walked in half workout clothes and half business clothes through the snowy streets to the gym and worked out and got to the office at 7.30 wow. and ran a company and was disciplined about leaving home to get home in time for, for my kids so that I could deal with all the stuff at the end of the day. And I did that for many years, and it was wonderful and thrilling and exhausting. So originally you're from the East Coast? Originally I'm from Seattle, Okay. but after going to college at Wellesley College, where I had an amazing experience, I landed in the middle of New York City having no idea what I'd gotten myself into and, and stayed until uh, 2000. And that's when you made your migration Sorry, back. 2010. My, my migration back to the San Francisco. Yeah, that, that's, sort of, that's sort of the second half of the story of yeah. how did you get to yeah. be... How'd you get to be doing this? Uh, so I was r running that crazy life of balancing being a mom and being a leader and trying to be everything for everybody. And what happens to many of us is that we sort of don't realize how close to the edge we're living life. And I had had cancer uh, earlier in my life. And uh, by the time my oldest daughter was already in college, my youngest was about to go to college, I had freed up enough time to do a philanthropic project. I had helped uh, start a school in Uganda for wow. uh, kids who didn't have access to education, nutrition, health care. And I was there visiting, and my older daughter was teaching for the summer, teaching English and math. And uh, I got a call from my oncologist, which usually when you have follow-ups after cancer, it's the nurse. And she says, we'll see you again in six months, blah, blah, blah. And this was the doctor. And you really don't want him to call you. It's kind of a bad mm -hmm. thing when he's on the phone. And he said, you know, bad news. Your cancer has uh, not only recurred, yeah. but it's aggressive. And you need to come home and have surgery. So and you were in Uganda this point. I, I'm in Uganda. I can barely hear on the phone. My daughter's there. I'm trying to, uh, you know, keep my act together. Right. And so I fly home and I had started uh, a number of companies for the same boss. And we had a very good relationship. And I walked in to say to him, hey, going to need to take a couple weeks off. Now it's 2009. It's the recession. Right. Times are super hard. Creative businesses are being commoditized because procurement departments are running them. And it's a very, very tough time. And instead of running a startup, which is what I love, I was running a turnaround, which isn't my sweet spot. So and and it's certainly not my sweet spot in a recession. But never good timing. This is never like, never you good couldn't timing. Pick a worse moment in what you were doing. Exactly. Um, and so my boss, instead of saying, "Don't worry, take a couple weeks, have the surgery," you know, you've done this before. You'll be there again. Said, "Ugh, I'm gonna have someone else run the company." <laughs> and in like the that. blink I mean, of was, an eye, I lost my health, my job, and my younger daughter was going off to college. And the only thing that had defined me in in suburbia was that. And so how do you go from a self-definition of, hi, I'm Ann, I'm the CEO, or hi, Ann, I'm, you know, these girls' mom, or, you know, hi, Ann, I'm, I'm, I'm healthy and I'm at the gym every morning, to nothing. So luckily it wasn't totally nothing. So, so Ann, what year was that? That was 2009. Okay. Um, and, you know, merging into 2010 as things un unwound. But the one thing that, while everything else was unwinding, my personal life was finally 
hitting a strong point. And I had a, a lovely boyfriend at the time who fortunately now is my husband, uh, who came out to be with me during the surgery. And, you know, we sort of talked about what do you do? Do you just get back on another horse? Do you run another company? And it was clear that it wasn't such a healthy lifestyle for me. And so because I, of the stress, I mean, before we let go of, of that, I mean, you've stress. got so many irons in the fire right. and you're constantly moving from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And it's like you don't have time to breathe. I mean, is that that's exactly right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And and I think to a great extent, the stresses that I had, I could mask by doing more than feeling. And that's a mistake a lot of business people, I think, fall into is instead of sort of taking a a, a minute to feel and to get a get some self awareness. You know, we just keep doing, doing, doing because mm-hmm. it feels great to accomplish. So I had a forced breath, a forced timeout, and um, my boyfriend said, why don't you, you know, he was living in Santa Cruz, which was not the best location for me. It was just too far removed from my New York City so now intense you're back. life. And he said, well, I'll meet you, I'll meet you, wasn't really in the middle, but let's move to San Francisco. And so we both started a life not really knowing people in San Francisco. So you Francisco. moved from New York at that point. I gave up everything and jumped on a plane. And walked and away. Walked away, wow. which which was scary. No kidding. Of course. Um, and you know, we we bought a house, and I was having fun, sort of nesting a bit, and was on the roof one day looking out at the the Golden Gate Bridge on my left and the Bay Bridge on my right, and Alcatraz in front of me, and the sun was setting, and the clouds were pink, and I thought, oh my god, this is such a peaceful, beautiful place. Where is a friend where I can have someone over and have a glass of wine? Yeah, and and, right. and, and share I it. didn't have any friends. Yeah. And, and I realized that while I had spent these years running companies and having a million people in my Rolodex at the time or, you know, contact list now, all of those people, with the exception of, you know, five who were truly dear friends, disappeared when I was no longer in power. So they weren't saying, how was your move and how are you feeling and how's you know, your health? Are, yeah. how's your health? Mm-hmm. They were on to whoever could help them next. And it made me realize how much I needed to differentiate transactional and networking relationships from authentic and meaningful relationships. It, it is a, it's an object lesson in the nature of relationships that arise from in a business context. I mean, it's, and, and I think you're articulating that, That's which right. is, you know, you spend so much time on a day-to-day basis when you're in the office yep. rubbing shoulders with people. and But as soon as the office environment ends all that infrastructure disappears. Is that, just, I mean, is that, that's kind of what you're saying, I think. Well, at least in terms of supportive relationships. I think if, if I was back in the business world, many of us were in the business world to accomplish things and to achieve, you know, in, in complementary forms. So, sure. you know, it's not completely cut and dry, but what I was realizing was um, the times that I had at Wellesley where we were really supportive of each other, the times I have two sister, so it was three girls growing up, my two daughters, we all had very close relationships. And when I was in the world that was very male-dominated at the time um, of, you know, proving myself and trying to figure out how to fit into a place that felt foreign, it didn't, I didn't have time and freedom and safety to develop the relationships that I sort of needed for the rest of me. And uh, the one place that that is not the case is I was uh, lucky enough to be named a fellow of the Aspen Institute, uh, which was heard of it. Yeah, it was a great honor. And we spent sort of two years off and on 20 high performing leaders who got to know each other. We would read the classics or listen to music and use that as a grounding um, experience so that whether it was Democrat or Republican, whether it was public sector, private sector, whether it was, you know, a, an American or, you know, a German, we all had shared a common experience that allowed us then to start connecting at a level far deeper than you would in a business. All arena. women or not mixed. all women. Yeah. And, but I remember looking around the room, um, thinking I know so much more about each of, you know, the other 19 people than I do about the people that, I have worked with or are in other aspects of my life. And so I I wanted to recreate that. And I personally wanted to recreate it for myself on a female level because so so much of my cancer story is very female and very personal. I sort of felt like I don't have others who are having authentic conversations. So I started experimenting um, by having friends of friends. I really didn't know anybody, but I knew people who knew people. 
And so I would sort of have a random group of, of 10 people over to my house. And one of them um, is a, you know, a, a poet in her free time. And she sort of talked about how do you make poetry accessible? And it wasn't the deepest conversation we ever had, but it was a common foundation that got people talking. And the women who came kind of liked it. And, the, and we said, well, what do we do? And well, we'll meet next month and maybe bring a friend. And so this whole model of a, a friend bringing another friend and bringing her into a safe place, a home, my home, um, was a very unusual experience. But let me stop because there's a, there a point there, which is when you're trying to get the engine to turn over for the first time, which is, you know, you're unconnected. You're trying to establish a social foundation for a purpose. How... How do you, how does one go about reaching out to ten strangers? I mean, I assume there's one degree of separation. You know, one or two yep. people, and you're asking them to reach out to their friends and let's let's get together and have some interesting discussions. Was that a hard? I, I would guess that would be. It's kind of a um, it's a nerve wracking thing to do. It's it's a classic. If I throw a party, will anybody show up? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I felt like I was so stripped bare by the time I started that. I wasn't worried because something was There's better than nothing. There's nowhere else to go. Yeah. Right, right. And, you know, I didn't know that it was going to grow into this now sort of national, more recently global organization and that my unmet needs were so many other people's unmet needs. I just thought I need to make some connections to survive. I mean, I was in that survival mode. But what I've found now, and, you know, we are in um, San Francisco with thousands of members, New York with close to a thousand members. We just did our first pop-up in London uh, two weeks ago, and we're launching in March in LA. So all of a sudden, people are reaching out to me and saying, are you going to come to our city, or how can I help you uh, come to my city? Because the things that you're doing, which is talking about the stuff that no one talks about, um, I'm missing and I'm needing and I'm in some sort of transition in my life somewhere, whether it's career or relationship or kids or, you know, whatever, that having some real conversations about the things that I don't get to talk about would be great. And and I also found women tend to, who are do-it-all people like many of those listeners and many of us in this room, we tend to put ourselves at the bottom of the totem pole in terms of who gets taken care of. You know, we take care of our parents and we take care of our kids and we take care of our spouse and we take care of work. And then where is the time where we get taken care of? It's often the thing that gets put aside. And so at Parlay House, it, you know at least once a month you'll show up to a nice place with really welcoming people and have some champagne and eat some nice food and finally feel like you're connecting and being taken care of. And if you can do that one day a month, it's better than most of us do. So for people who are just now dialing in, um, you're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM 132. Our guest this hour is Ann Devereaux Mills, who is the founder and the founder of Parley House. And so, Anne, I was going to ask, uh, we're, we're into the conversation, but when you, when people say, hey, Anne, what, what is Parley House? How do you short caption that or do you? I mean, or is it a longer conversation to explain it? Well, I, I call it different things depending on who I'm talking yeah. to. The reality is it's a, it's a, now a series of gatherings of women who come together to connect about what they care about rather than what they do. So, you know, they're gatherings. They always have some sort of focus of, a co of content, whether it's a panel, a speaker, um, or a topic. And that provides a safe grounding. For, if you don't know somebody walking up and saying, hi, I'm Anne, and starting conversations, it's much easier when you can say, what did you think of what that speaker just said? Or have you ever suffered from what that person was talking about? You know, it gives you a way to open the conversation if you're less comfortable socially. And so, you know, I, I would would call it a modern day salon but in fact when we're when we're trying to when when I was thinking of what do I call this thing yeah um I was parlaying one uh time of my life into the next one chapter into the next and that word parlay sort oh, of yeah. made sense, sense to me uh, but then I also um speak some French and I knew that it came from the word to speak and that made more sense and then when I started googling well what website can I buy um, I realized the term parlay actually is a gambling term which means more in it when we when we go into it together so that was sort of okay the world was saying yes <laughs> parlay house this makes is the sense one. <laughs> because it, it works in three different three different ways what a powerful experience and to extend that experience based on a need that you had where you are with your life and saying you know I'm going to put it out there and make this 
opportunity or this resource available to everybody. And you had mentioned, so right now the gals meet about a thousand members once a month. Well, we don't meet as a thousand. Mm-hmm. The intimacy, intimacy is super important. So what happens is we have um, membership is is not only free, but it's up to each member to bring in another member. Mm-hmm. So there's not an application process. There's not a fee. We want it to be all inclusive. We have members who are in their 20s and in their 80s. And I don't know what half of them do for a living because that's not how we present ourselves. You do end up knowing as conversations happen. But we really try to make it be as diverse and outside of our day-to-day bubbles as possible because that's really how we get different perspectives and learn and grow and find commonalities and appreciate differences. And mentoring goes both directions. You know, it's not just older women mentoring younger women, but really across the board. And, you know, it's sort of this magical thing that is beyond words when you can hear the buzz in the room of people feeling freed and excited to, to talk about things that are usually hard that's a breakthrough. What kind of themes are are coming up given the givens? I mean, where we are, (laughs) you know, in one's life, everybody's at some kind of crossroads and then the whole, you know, macro kind of picture of what's going on for women in general. And then as country, what are, what are some of the things that you're hearing? That's a great question. I mean, you know, that's my biggest job is curator, right? Curating the conversations that people want to have. So some obvious ones that will make you laugh but are really true, my most popular and and uh, the, the woman who has spoken to us more than any other person is uh, a psychologist named Wendy Bahari, and she's an expert in how to deal with narcissists. Mm-hmm. And so... Not just male narcissists. No, actually not just male narcissists because some of the women who were there related back to a mother or to a, you know, to another family member, it wasn't just bosses. But that definitely how you deal, what is happening with a personality that behaves that way, what's happening in their minds behind the scenes and what are some uh, techniques for disarming them was hugely meaningful. Wow, that's interesting. So that, you know, that one is great. We had a panel of women in both cities, both New York and San Francisco, one of our more successful panels, was a combination of women who had been successful founders, CEOs, and who had risen to the top while battling eating disorders and depression. And so they really oh. talked about the things that you don't usually talk about, that you're worried about if you expose them in a work situation, people might think you're vulnerable or weak or worrisome or whatever. But in fact, many of us at some points in our lives are struggling with something significant and they were willing to put it on the table. And they were partnered with some young women who had been faced with similar issues early enough that they had actually um, founded solutions. So we had on the for-profit side, the, the builders who had been creating companies and and sort of covering up for their struggles. And on the entrepreneurial side, we had these young women who had eating disorders and were hospitalized at 14 years old and realized how lucky they were to have their parents who could pay for hospitalization. And they said, well, we've got to create something so that women who aren't as lucky as us can get the same services. And so they, you know, they all came together as a panel and it was moving. That is moving. And there's so much trust. There's so much trust to put one's experience and vulnerabilities out there to everybody. And it's kind of like what happens at Parley House stays in Parley House. Exactly. It's it's the most we have in common with Vegas, for sure. Right, (laughs) right. I was going to ask, what are the parameters for coming together? It sounds like you or there's a a group facilitator Mm -hmm. or moderator. And then um, what's the ideal size of the group? It, you know, it depends on what we're doing. I had started trying to squeeze as many people in as possible and then, you know, constantly checking membership for how do you feel about things. I sort of got the feedback that full is great, overflowing and uncomfortable is problematic. And so it, it depends. I have more room in San Francisco than I do in New York. So we probably have 40 or 50 in New York and 70 or 80 in San Francisco each and it's, month. And it's it's um, opt-in. You buy a ticket for 25 bucks because I wanted it to be affordable to anybody without question of, mm-hmm. you know, ability to pay. And I found, you know, surprise, surprise, when it was free, a lot of people didn't show up because they had no skin in the game. Mm-hmm. So there is a, you know, a nominal yeah, fee uh, that yeah. helps me to know how that's right for yield. Yep. And then um, it, it's not like a free-for-all discussion. There's a theme and a designated speaker to lead the discussion? There is. So you show up. You w- People are, are late because of parking and traffic and all those things that both San Francisco and New York and L.A. and London share. So we have sort of social time at the beginning with uh, food and and 
champagne, and then uh, we get the get the event started, and I moderate, and it usually is sort of a thirty minute conversation with uh, fifteen minute to thirty minute Q and A afterwards, and then people who need to go home to either tuck kids in bed or have a late dinner with their partner or whatever, they leave. And some people who who have found relevance in conversation stay until I have to kick them out. That's great. So one other question. We're going to go to break here in just a second, but um, I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully here. Do you ha- do you find that you, I mean, there are people that may show up and try to commandeer the conversation or shift the dynamic of the conversation in a way that starts to detract from what you perceive to be a more wholesome environment? Occasionally, not so often, Yeah, but you know, I've, I didn't know I was a good moderator until I had to practice doing it. Yeah. But, I, but I, I think I've mastered the art of sort of quietly refocusing something that goes awry. And sometimes somebody needs to talk just because that's where they are in their lives, that they need that validation of having something to say. And I think there's enough respect in the room that when that's happening, people know that it's happening and they just give her at least enough time so that she feels – you know, she got that out, and then we'll we'll reframe the conversation. Yeah. And then one last question, which is, um, I mean, you've already mentioned it, but the premise is that not only is trust fundamental to the dynamic of the conversation, but it's do you articulate that what what is said in that yep. in your house stays in that house? It's not to be shared outside. I mean, that's Absolutely. why pe- that's why people are willing to be vulnerable. We have Absolutely. we have the rule that what happens here stays here, and we have the rule that you don't come to solicit or ask for anything. So if you're looking for a job, that's great, but this is not the place to do it. If you're you know needing to to have help for your your startup organization and you want some free marketing services, that's not. We we learned the hard way that people were resentful that those things were happening. So we. We've just been very clear up front that you don't come solicit to solicit and you don't kiss and tell. That's yeah. right. Because that's, um, again, it breaks the foundation of trust for it to be authentic. Yeah. Um, I'm Irina Yen. I'm here along with Doug Collum. And our guest this hour is Anne Deverell Mills. Please stay with us as we continue this really thought-provoking conversation about Parlay House. And you are listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. Welcome back to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's business radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Irina Yen, along with my co-host, Doug Collum, and our guest this hour is Anne Devereaux Mills. And when we left off, we were talking about uh, how trust is the foundation of this community, and without it, and that's the reason why it's as meaningful as it is. And currently, um, there's a chapter in San Francisco and New York with more than 1,000 members um, and growing. members. And we actually don't even know how many have been because we, um, you know, we don't collect names when everyone shows up. And a lot of times someone will buy, who's a member, will buy a ticket for a friend. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to encourage everybody now to actually sign up so we can count the numbers. Uh, It's very hard to keep track of of an organization that's built by one woman pulling another woman forward um, without too many questions asked. And it's grown organically, it sounds like, which yeah, is we a do reflection. no marketing, no, mm-hmm. which is my background, you know, hard for me to just let something organically become what it's going to become. But that's what's happening. And the reason that we are now not only San Francisco and New York, but uh, we just uh, did a kickoff in London. Um, it was a crazy story of um, someone that I know very well through my business world announced that she was, uh, as a, a longtime CEO, that she was leaving uh, her role. And I just wrote on social media a very thoughtful, you're amazing note. And I guess someone who she knew from London read my comment and said, wow, that was a nice, thoughtful response. Who is this woman? And when she read about Parlay House, she thought, oh my God, this is what I need in London. I want to start it in London. And she reached out to me. And so I helped her figure out on her terms and with what what her capacity was, how we could uh, 
get it started in London, and I helped her pull together. You know, the the big secret of success about this, and this will lead into something I know we want to get to in a little bit, is the more diverse your core group is, the more successful it's going to be because a friend brings a friend. Your friends tend to be in your age circle or in your demographic circle or in your interest circle. And so the more range you have when you start, the better the organization is from a a diversity and balance standpoint. So I helped her augment the people that I knew through friends and who were friends in London. And we had a a very diverse and and great kickoff uh, a couple weeks ago. And then something very similar happened to me. Someone came as a guest in San Francisco from L.A. And she said, wow, I wish we had one of these in L.A., And I said, well, it's a place that it makes a lot of sense. It's going to be challenging given freeways and whatever, but I would love to help you do that. And so, in fact, March 9th, we already have a sold-out event in L.A., and we're trying to figure out how many different chapters we're going to need in that crazy freeway city in order to to allow people to connect in communities. That's exciting. So how does that work? Because how do we scale Anne, who started it, and you're a moderator of these events. You're the soul and spirit um, of it, and, of course, that's expanded. So as you expand to London and you've augmented through your you know, your um, community of people and then Los Angeles, how do you maintain the culture um, where do you start out kicking them off? Um, do you let these folks who are starting the chapters take the baton and run with it? How does uh, work? Yes and yes. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I do try to be there for the first kickoff because it helps them know, you know, sort of why it's happening and who I am. But I don't have to be there. I think when you have some basic operating principles that are sort of sound and universal, um, you can have the comfort to see how someone else's take on what you've done evolves. So, you know, our very, our very simple, all about inclusion, all about one person taking responsibility for bringing one more person into the circle, you know, the non-transactional relationship mandate that this is not about extraction and not about asking and not about rubbing each other's backs, but about listening and connecting and supporting. Um, You know, once everybody agrees, those are our basic operating principles. Um, If you have someone who's willing to curate and willing to keep an open mind about how their group evolves based on the group's needs, it tends to be successful. The really cool thing about having a group that's bigger than the number of people you can have at any one time is the members self-select based on their interest and availability. So if they happen to be free that night and something about the programming intrigues them, they show up. And guess what? They already cared. They were already interested. So they have a great time. Right. So it's it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy of, um, of success. But let, let me press the question because I'm just – I'm still probing here. So, Anne, you are, in, a, in as it relates to Parlay House, which is an organization that's expanded. You're now in four areas and going into more. Yep, hope so. You're the center of the universe. I mean, you bring, you know, the basic tenet associated with what this organization is about, why people come together, and, you know, what you've found optimizes for a great discussion. As you expand, you have these places going on outside of San Francisco where you live under the rubric of Parlay House. So there is a a brand associated with it. And you know where I'm going with this, which is, you know, what happens if your group in London suddenly goes off task and they start, it becomes a political forum to talk about Brexit or, you know, or it becomes a, uh, you know, pick pick your contentious uh, topic. And suddenly you you don't have a curated discussion. You've got people going at each other, creating ill will, and suddenly the whole thing starts to fall apart, all under this rubric of Parley House. Does that – so I'm now asking you as a former CEO, does that worry you? It it doesn't. That could happen. Um, and, and many times when we try to deal with um, difficult political issues, for example, we, we walk a fine line. So we've had a political event in each city. We, in San Francisco, uh, the night before the presidential election, we had Joanna Reese, who ran for mayor of San Francisco, didn't win. But she talked about what it was like being a female candidate and what she needed to do and prepare for and what she hadn't expected. And, you know, she was talking in theory about what Hillary's experience m- might have been like and it was fascinating and bipartisan nonpartisan it was just what's the human experience in this scenario and in new york but that's under your direction it's I, a, I mean i would say uh, well let me let me let, yeah, me, okay. let me let me continue so in new york we had a woman who purported to be 
nonpartisan when she ran the uh, the Yale School, runs the Yale School for Women in Politics. When she showed up at my house, she was much more partisan than I had expected, and I had to figure out how to craft the 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 not having it be a political situation. If it if it was somebody who took our goal of being inclusive and hearing all angles and facilitating facilitating conversation, and they all of a sudden tended to have a point of view, and were using it for ulterior purposes, I'd probably have to uh, you know step in. But my goal is unless something becomes hurtful or exclusionary or goes against our basic principles. Um, I have to let the organizations evolve in the way that the membership wants. I mean, I I created Parlay House in the sense that it it was sort of based on my unmet need, and it started in my home. But, boy, there were 20, 25 women who were at the core of it who took on their own the time to help us develop our language and help us with a logo and help, you know, there, there are, so all those pieces are in place. All yeah. those pieces are in place. And we have, we have a very um, have like significant a website. Yep. We're and, and some of, some of the basic operating principles we're putting together. Now I have a core team yep. uh, who's super supportive. And so there are a bunch of really smart people who put our heads together and play off these what ifs and how do we handle in the exact way that you're you're asking now and you know this is the thing that on, an entrepreneur does you know you you test and you have ideals and some work and some fail and if it fails it might fail for a reason that is even better than what you thought and you have to sort of think about it and and figure out whether you want to intervene or not and it's about good leadership and about good team building and also about not being overly controlling, which any of us high-performing type A perfectionists <laughs> yeah. struggle with. Yeah. You dance around that So way. how important is, I mean, just to ask, these are questions yeah. that we, we learned to ask in business school. Um, how important is data? It sounds like there is a feedback loop associated with the meetings in different geographies and amongst different constituencies. How, how do you gather data and how is it sliced and diced and do you have people reporting to you? I mean, it sounds starting to sound an awful lot like a business. (laughs) It does. Uh, You know, we have, we have a loose organizational structure, which is very intentionally staffed with a wide range of participants. So I have plenty of 20 to 30 year olds, you know, I'm 57. I have plenty of 20 to 30 year olds who are giving me feedback on here's what people would like to talk about. Here's what didn't go well. We, when something, when we have an event that is less than what we'd hoped, we, we sort of look at each other and think we didn't see that coming. And what do we do about it? I have, uh, my, my partner in crime, uh, here in San Francisco is um, a woman who's 20 years my junior, but she's really like my sister in life. And she will, she and I will look at each other and be like, you know, we didn't have high hopes for that this uh, this uh, topic because it really didn't relate to us personally. But look at the engagement of everybody in the room, and we both shake our heads. She didn't see it coming at 35. I didn't see it coming at 57. And yet there are all these people for whom it's relevant. So we try to – it's qualitative data. It's not quantitative. You know, We don't do surveys on, uh, on an ongoing basis, just occasionally when we're looking for, for big answers, we, we poll people. Um, but you know, it, it, it's it's a it's a weird, squishy, touchy feely, but evolving real business that I hope will become enriching for um, the women who decide they want one in their neck of the woods, um, both financially and and maybe more important because we don't get this part um, emotionally and personally. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Bay Area Ventures. Our guest this hour is Ann Devereaux Mills, who's the founder of an organization called Parlay House, uh, comprising of of several thousand women at this point, meeting in different locations, both in the United States and outside. And um, it is an interesting discussion, Anne, because it does sound like more and more as you lead the charge forward as if it, I mean, it has the, it has a lot of the trappings of a business. I mean, it it just does, even though it's a, it's a not-for-profit organization. Yeah, it does, um, and and hopefully it will become something that blossoms in whatever way it's intended to. You know, I also send out a monthly sort of series of, of thoughts called One Small Thing, and it's not just to women. It's an extension of this idea that we each are more capable uh, as individuals than we think, as long as we don't get overwhelmed by trying to solve problems that are too big. So you, you approach one small thing at a time, and you do tend to make progress and uh, find momentum. Um, and my, my notes go out to men and women and everybody in my network. And 
what I find that I think is surprising because our society doesn't necessarily provide the forum for men to express some of the things that we're feeling is when I get responses to that um, that newsletter, which is inclusive of of women and men, many of the people who are relating and responding and saying, thank God you're bringing this up or talking about it, or this was a super helpful frame for me, are the men who in our society don't necessarily have the outlets and the forums to have these kinds of discussions. So I had felt excluded as a woman in the business that I was in um, and in many aspects of my life, which is why I formed Parlay House as a female organization. There's no reason that this can't become, as women gain, gain more and more traction and as there really is sort of an equal playing field on the other aspects of our life in terms of responsibilities and opportunities, that it becomes some, a place to have conversations of all kinds um, for not just women. So as far as women here in Silicon Valley, that's been a pretty um, interesting topic of conversation, and hopefully it's evolving. Because Parlay House provides this community, a unique community for women, um, and here in Silicon Valley, particularly in venture capital, there's been a lot of conversation about the lack of representation uh, in that in that world. So I was just wondering, what are your thoughts about to what extent you're hearing it evolving in the context of Parlay House or in general, and what more can be done? Well, it's it's funny because I do try to feature female founders every, you know, I, I rotate something emotional, something business, something insightful, uh, you know, on an ongoing basis to mix up the content and appeal to different groups. And when I have entrepreneurs like, you know, Tina Sharkey of Brandless or some of these women who have broken through and raised a bunch of money and have had, you know, experiences that aren't the norm still for women in Silicon Valley, the audience is learning so much from them by and giving them a safe place to tell their stories. And, you know, that is, that's offering a service and coaching without it really being a business situation saying here is how we approached or experienced it for better or for worse um, as women and here's what made us smarter, stronger as a result. So, you know, we're not a business driven organization, but those insights of other people's experiences and lessons learned um, are the types of things that men have always been able to share with each other and we're later to the party or not at the party yet. And so having those conversations to prepare each other, I think will help address, you know, on a tiny level, we're, we're a fragment of what's happening in Silicon Valley. But I think meaningful conversations even get passed on for women who aren't there. So you're, you're a, a, a woman in venture or a woman who's trying to raise money and you don't have other people to talk to, well, hopefully your friend was just at Parlay House hearing, you know, about cryptocurrency or whatever topic um, is relevant for what you're doing and, and, and can coach you even though you weren't there. So I think we're providing that service. Yeah. As, yeah. It's interesting to me just because um, in some of the classes that I teach at Wharton, d diversity is an issue that either inadvertently or inadvertently comes up and it usually comes up in the context of there's something like a single digits percentage of women who are actually partners at venture capital firms. And then you talk to women, and some of whom have been, have been on the program, talk about their experiences fundraising. And it's interesting. You get some very, um, very different perspectives on, you know, life as, it, as it's lived here in Silicon Valley. This is not the real world, I'm convinced. I mean, you get outside of, you know, the tech sector and suddenly, you know, the life begins. But, um, you know, diversity is a significant aspect of what is going on or lack thereof. And I think you're right in the middle of it, Anne, which is you, you're getting women talking to you either in their professional uh, selves or outside of that. Well, and, you know, as we all know, you can't totally separate your professional self from your personal self and your parental self right. and your emotional self. And that all uh, bleeds into each other. And uh, there is definitely a huge biting need in Silicon Valley for these these conversations. I don't think it's always ill-intended. You know, we've had we've had a couple male speakers. I think we've had three or four male speakers over the years. One of them was willing to be in a, you know, again, I, I won't use names since what happens at Parlay House stays in Parlay Parlay House, but it's a person who runs a very technical business. And one of the women were asking, why is it so male? And he said, well, you know, you start off with these genius, um, maybe on the spectrum, very intelligent, very nerdy 
founders yeah. who then all of a sudden have a business they have to scale and they're nervous. And who do they ask? They ask the person they trust, which is the other guy that they used to hang out with. And then those guys know two more guys. And pretty soon you have this founding group of people who are all men who just happen to know other men. And that's the way, um, the way it scales. And so figuring out how to get people to understand that the more like at Parlay House, the more diverse your core uh, is, the more likely you're going to be successful as an organization evolves, that diversity of experiences, insights, points of view might be harder. There's actually science that shows that teams that are not all thinking the same are dramatically more effective than uh, teams that are teams that are integrate or that are different. And, you know, I, I think that that's a, a lesson in lots of places that we can benefit from. So the question we frequently ask our guests when they're at the helm of a growing organization is where do you, where do you see this thing going? I mean, and most of them, you know, don't have a specific three-year plan or five-year plan, but they have a sense of, you know, how expanded the footprint's going to be over the course of some reasonable term. Do you, do you have a I, sense I, for I that? I do, and I'm going to answer it in a weird way. So at, at one point in my career, my third to the last job, I was the chief integration officer at BBDO. BBDO is one of the huge advertising conglomerates. And chief integration officer, this is probably... 12, 15 years ago. Okay. Chief integration officer meant we were getting big clients who were used to doing TV and print and out of home to think about the oh, world of digital advertising. <laughs> well, my greatest success was that chief integration officers were no longer needed because digital was so well entrenched in everything everybody was doing. So, you know, my greatest goal for Parlay House is it becomes less less important for women because we're so integrated into every other aspect and we're having open conversations not only with other women but with our male business counterparts our partners our parents our children you know it will that happen in my lifetime probably not so my 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 lifetime goal for parlay house is that in any city you go to um, whether you're a new resident or a visitor or you're going with a friend, there's a there's an intimate, safe conversation happening about something you care about that in some way gives you a sense that you're not alone. Right, to and parlay that experience, the member experience, into something greater that fundamentally shifts. Exactly. I, I thought you were going to say, which which obviates the need for a parlay house. Well, that's, first right. that's my right. point, but I, I don't believe that'll be in my lifetime. Yeah. But I truly hope we're headed in the direction that that's the case. So let me ask, we only have a few seconds left. Um, how can people reach you? And is this a sort of platform, this radio program, this sort of thing where you're, it's, it's a, it's an effective way or a desirable way of growing what you've got going. Absolutely. With um, it, you can reach me personally. You can go through my website at andeveromills.com. Uh, Devereux is D-E-V-E-R-E-U-X. It's a tough one, andeveromills.com. Uh, or you can go on to the parlayhouse.com website. There's a contact us uh, button. And that contact us is me. So you can can reach me or my my uh, trustworthy assistant, and I'll get back to you as well as I can. If it, this sounds like something you need that you want to spearhead in your town, even if it's something you do quarterly, even if you try two a year, even if you just have one conversation, it's probably going to be meaningful in starting. So don't feel overwhelmed by what this has become. Think about where it was when it started, which was 10 people in my living room. And if they want to be a member just to start, one person? If you don't know someone, reach out to me. Okay. We are out of time. Anne, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It was um, fun. So just ahead, we'll be speaking with Anthemos Georgiadis, the CEO of Zumper, where he leads the company in its mission to make renting an apartment as easy as booking a hotel. I'm Doug Collum, along with my co-host, Irene Yen. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 